Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today we are looking at the world of animal conservation, and especially we're focusing on the conservation of rhinos. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show two wonderful guests, Shannon Elizabeth and Simon Borchard. They are a dynamic husband and wife duo, and many of you will recognize Shannon Elizabeth. She's a well-known actor, she's been in American Pie and Scary Movie, and about 50 other films and television shows. We're going to be looking at the work they're doing operationally to protect rhinos in Africa, and also the programmatic side, the scholarships and training they are doing in order to increase and enhance the workforce of people going into conservation with an underpinning of women's economic empowerment, so attracting women into the field as well, and how they are engaging with the legislative process, how they're engaging with legislators to ensure that the right legislation is passed in order to protect rhinos. So without further ado, Shannon and Simon, it's a pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better podcast today. Ah, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. So you're both out there in Cape Town. I'm here in the UK. We're persevering a little bit with internet connection, so hopefully it'll be all great. Um, so tell us about the Shannon Elizabeth Foundation. What's it all about? Well, um, I'll start. So I came to South Africa in 2015, wanting to learn about the poaching crisis, having learned a little bit online and a, a switch flipped in me. And I said, this is what I need to do with my life. Because I, I had run a charity, Animal Avengers, in Los Angeles since 2001, and I, I wanted to do more um, and in a bigger way, help more animals and, and utilize whatever platform I had in the biggest way possible. So I came out here to learn, and then I ended up moving out here in the end of 2016. I was introduced to Simon. Actually, on my first trip out, we reconnected at the beginning of 2017, uh, he grew up in conservation, and we started talking about what what could we jointly do to make a difference in the world and in conservation. And we we got together and rebranded the the organization and started working on programs. And you know what could we bring to this? Maybe that was different than what was happening already. And um, we brought his dad out of retirement, who's quite a well known conservationist out here. And I'll let Simon tell you about his family and stuff, but. That's kind of how it started in a nutshell. So Shannon, you, you've been involved with, with uh, the well-being of animals for, for a long time. Right after I did American Pie, it was the first time I was in a position to start to give back. And I've always had a huge love of animals. And I knew that I wanted to do something with animals and started exploring all the dog and cat rescues in LA. And after a long exploration, just decided I wanted to do it myself and make sure that the money was going to the animals and they were we were we were helping as many animals with the money coming in as possible and it wasn't just going in someone's pocket so that was kind of my motivation to start it in the beginning um i'm kind of just that personality you want something done right you do it yourself so i jumped in and started learning <laughs> excellent now dogs dogs and cats quite different than rhinos yes, very different than rhinos i had a lot of learning to do coming out here which you know, I, I came in 2015 just to start meeting people and learning about the issues because I still didn't know, like, well, what could I do to help? 
So I came out to South Africa, went to Zimbabwe. I eventually went to Kenya and landed back in South Africa. And when I, when I first came out here, it was for a couple of months. I went back home. I was living in New York at the time and realized that I needed to be out here. I wanted to live here, be close to the issues. Um, suddenly racing around New York late for a meeting didn't seem important to me anymore. So I came back out here to, to do what I can to make a difference. And I still go back to, to work because that's, that's my day job. And, and then this is, this is my life mission. You know, I kind of think of it, this is my mission on the planet. So that's why I'm here. Excellent. And Simon, so you have a tradition of uh, conservation in the family, right? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Um, second generation conservationist. And I, I remember growing up as a kid, I, I had friends that would go to their uh, these sort of beach destinations on the coast with with their families and friends. And my dad, who had a, a wonderful passion, still has an incredible passion and knowledge of African wildlife and conservation, would drag me and my sisters off to another elephant orphanage or another sanctuary or back into the field with another wildlife photographer. And it felt so tedious when I was a child. But looking back on it now, it is the most remarkable gift I could ever have asked for in, in growing up in what was a very interesting time within the South African landscape. Um, I grew up uh, during the time of apartheid in South Africa, and because of my father's incredible altruism, um, I grew up with a very keen understanding of not just the socioeconomic and racial inequalities, uh, but how that impacted the people in the landscapes of Africa in a conservation context. So I always grew up with this very keen belief and understanding that the privileges and the opportunities we have in life shouldn't be seen as a burden, but they should be seen as the greatest gift to be able to correct injustices where you where you see them. So fast forward a few years and my, my father had started a magazine called Africa Geographic, which was an extraordinary publication that, um, although we don't publish it anymore, it set the foundation for what we could do as a family across the continent. Um, and it provided us with a network of credibility and it provided us with a very, very deep 50 plus year understanding of conservation and impact on the ground from a philanthropic sense. And so when we, when Shannon and I met and we got together, um, I drew upon the other side of my, of my career, which was brand and business development strategy and said, you know, we've got to take a very entrepreneurial view with the NGO landscape. I think NGOs quite often make the mistake that passion is a qualification, that because I love it, therefore I'm going to be good at impact. And it's sadly, it's just not true. And we need to be very, very entrepreneurial about what we do. So with the entrepreneurial mantra of, you know, is there a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? In other words, just because we could do it and want to do it, was there a real need and opportunity for us to deliver on that? Or were we just creating more noise? Um, and that's the last thing conservation needs is just another NGO asking for money for the same thing. Um, it's, it's just counterproductive. And so we took a collaborative stance and said, where can we add our unique set of skills to the work that needs doing? And could we do it in a way that adds volume to existing credible voices? Um, or are we just going to get lost in the pile? And based on that, we chose our programming and recalibrated, re 
strategized, rebranded, and effectively relaunched with our first programming in 2019. And so enlighten me and enlighten us a little bit on the landscape. So what's the state of affairs with regards to conservation, rhinos uh, in your neck of the woods? What's going on? Gosh, um, I think that... Uh, in 10 seconds. In 10 <laughs> seconds. Uh, <laughs> in 10 seconds, the way to save the world is to save people. COVID showed that to us in no uncertain terms, that to protect wildlife and to protect habitat, we have to protect people. So the biggest the biggest crisis that we've identified is, is that every solution needs to center around the protection of habitat through the upliftment of indigenized and historically marginalized communities. And that's not just a observation that is relevant to the African continent. I think that is globally true and globally relevant. And so all of the socioeconomic the political, the conservation, the biological, um, the, the illegal trade issues are all underpinned by the inequalities that have been observed in those two paradigms. Mm. And um, I know you, you, you have a, a, a blind black rhino called Munu. <laughs> yes. Munu is a wonderful name. I have to say, I, I, I love the name. Uh, but one of the things we were talking about before clicking the record button it's about just being very mindful about making sure that we're we're not overtly saying this is where Munu is. Like you want to make yeah. sure that you protect, you want to protect these details. Um, how dire is the situation for for rhinos? I mean, is it basically a, a target on everybody's back, on every rhino's back? Absolutely. Um, I'll let Shannon talk about Munu, but I'll I'll give the horrible stats first. Um, so what we saw, just a very quick sort of three or four minute history of, of how we got into this mess, was that if we go go back to sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and even before that, at the beginning of the last century, there were 100,000, if not hundreds of thousands of rhino across the African continent. And systematically, they were taken out through um, unregulated um, trophy hunting, um, uh, land reappropriation for agriculture, for uh, domestic development, etc. And so we saw those numbers absolutely plummet to literally a few hundred animals. And various influences came in during that time, most of them cultural attachments from the Middle East and from uh, Asia, um, in particular China at the time. And what we saw was that in Yemen, rhino horn was used as the decorative handles of Yemeni ceremonial daggers. And so there was a huge cultural attachment to the use of rhino horn. And so the poaching saw a strike, uh, saw an uptick through a result of that demand. Similarly, there was a huge demand out of China for traditional Chinese medicine, where historically rhino horn was seen as uh, everything from an aphrodisiac to a cure to cancer to a cure for the, for the common cold. All of which, which is absolute nonsense, because uh, chewing on your fingernails would yield the same result as consuming rhino horn and its efficacy to to curb the the impact of cancer, as an example. Because all it is is compressed keratin, um, and so the, the the these ludicrous associations to health benefits were were simply so strong from a cultural attachment that that saw those numbers drive right down to a point where the late Dr. Ian Player, who's largely credited with the salvation of the southern white rhino, 
um, brought them back from a few hundred animals and was able to all but hide them in private reserves, fire, private farms, even zoos around the world in an attempt to protect what was left of the genetic diversity and the bloodline within that micro population. Um, and that was largely solved in the in the 70s predominantly through the u.s inter intervention from a political sense uh, under the lacey act and the pelly act which basically said to china if you want to trade with the west clean up your act and part of it was signing on to this funny new organization called cites and all but overnight um within a year we saw a dramatic reduction in the poaching numbers, um, almost 90, 95%. And that allowed for the impact of Dr. Player's work to be realized um, and for ultimately for the rhino to be saved. And because of that, the populations went up to about 27,000 of white rhino um, and maybe eight or 9,000 of, of black rhino. And all seemed hunky-dory in the land of rhino conservation um, until around about 2004, 2005, there was an increased uh, observation of uh, poaching in, West, in East Africa. And that was filtered, yes, there was still a lot of attachment to traditional Chinese medicine, but we started to see demand growing out of areas like Laos, Cambodia, and in particular Vietnam where to this day, upwards of 80% of the horn that is poached in South Africa ends up either, either um, consumed in Vietnam or distributed from Vietnam into Southeast Asia and back into to China to a lesser extent. And the demand for it has uh, morphed into, in, uh, in Vietnam, it's used as a hangover cure for the social elite. Um, it's used as a trinket, sort of libation cups, ceremonial cups. Um, it's uh, used as jewelry. Um, and probably the most disturbing is that it's seen as a status symbol just for those who are wealthy enough to own it. And so we see it being bestowed as a gift, um, as a sign of goodwill within uh, high-ranking business deals out of Hong Kong, um, Hong, uh, China, and so on. So what we've seen is, is, a, is a movement from the traditional Chinese medicine, the cultural attachments, to more social status attachments. And that has made it more complicated from a geographic perspective, but also more complicated from a demand reduction perspective. Isn't how do you get people to not use this stuff? Um, then as the, the poaching moved down East Africa, it started to hit Zimbabwe in about 2006, 2007. All the writing was on the wall that this poaching crisis was going to hit the uh, the heartbeat of rhino conservation in South Africa, where at the time 90% of the world's rhino lived. And it sure as hell came into South Africa. And from 2008 through to 2015-16, we were losing rhinos hand over fist. And the highest stat was almost three and a half rhino a day were being poached um, for their horn. Um, and it, you know, we, we don't like talking about how much it trades for um, because we don't want to put a value to the horn. We want to make sure that people realize the value in a living animal with its horn and what that means to communities and economies. But it ranges. It's been as high as six figures US in terms of its, uh, its appeal, its financial appeal. Um, and then we've seen in the last 10 years, we've seen the decimation of over 70% of the state's rhinos in places like Kruger National Park, where we've gone from 11,000 uh, 11 years ago 
to now arguably below 2,000 animals. Um, absolute devastation. Terrible. Add to that South Africa's national sport of corruption, and you've got an incredibly difficult landscape to navigate in terms of how you can correct these these issues. So it's come down to, to, to privateers. It's come down to people like us and our colleagues in the game that are prepared to put our lives on the line to protect these, animal, these animals. And we're at a point now with Munu. You know, you, you think of it, why would you protect a blind black rhino? Um, but his subspecies, um, well, black rhino are critically endangered under IUCN Appendix 1, and they've been annihilated. So Munu is critical because there's less than 170 of his subspecies left in South Africa, and arguably around about 1,000 left in the world. And the trajectory isn't looking good when the traditional range states of northern Namibia, Botswana are completely decimated. So although he's blind, his genetics are absolutely pristine, and we've got an opportunity to breed him so that his progeny can play a role in populating areas that have been decimated by poaching. And I'll, I'll let Shannon talk more about our boy. Well, but, but before you do, I mean, you've painted a very sobering picture, very unpleasant to, to listen to this, and you certainly have your work cut out for you. Um, Shannon, tell us about Munu, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. What's he like? Yeah, Munu. So Munu was found wandering around Addo Elephant National Park, which is um, probably next to Kruger, the biggest out here. Is that right, Simon? Correct. Um, so National Park, wandering around in circles, which is uncommon for a black rhino. So they knew something was wrong. The rangers found him. They darted him, had him checked out and realized that he was completely blind. And what they believe is that one eye went blind from territorial fights. He's a very big, beautiful bull. And he would fight with other big bulls for his area. And that's common for black rhinos. They're very solitary creatures. So then being able to only see out of one eye, there's a protein buildup just like in humans. And eventually the retina detached. And with both retinas detached now, they don't see any way of correcting it at this time. So um, they were in a quandary. Do we put them down? Do we take on the expense of taking care of him? Do we just put him back and see what happens and let the lions take him? But because, like Simon said, he's so endangered, they felt like that every rhino needs to be protected. And they went to the privateers and basically said, who wants to take care of him and who can help us? And a guy named Brett Barlow put his hand up and said, I want him. I love him. I want him. I'll take care of him. He's taken care of rhinos before. He knows what he's doing. And so he became his official guardian. And shortly after that happened, he came to us and he said, I need help. Do you guys want to help me with this project with Munu? He's amazing. Let me introduce you. So we went and met Munu and we just fell in love with him. It's the first time I, I've seen like, we were standing on a, a podium, a platform, and Brett calls him and is like, Munu, Munu. And Munu, stand, he's sleeping. He stands up and he walks over to us. And, and we're able to give him some of his favorite treats. And I just remember thinking he knows his name. And it's so amazing because usually in the wild with rhino, you want to be very quiet. You don't make noise. You And especially with black rhino, they can be quite aggressive. So you don't want to stand where they can smell you. And with Munu, it's exactly different because he only relies on his hearing. You want him to hear you, recognize your voice, know you're there, know that it's safe. 
Because if he just hears strange noises and he doesn't know who it is, he's going to get scared. So we, we jumped in and said, we want to help with this. And because we're not doing what I used to do, we're not just like a rescue facility, we're doing conservation, then it's not about just rescuing him and putting him in a, in a safe haven, but it's about, well, what can he contribute back to, to his kind, to the parks, to conservation as a whole? So what would he do in the wild? He would breed. So we are looking for girlfriends for him. Not, at first it was one and now it's many. He, he's told us he wants a harem. So we're getting some girlfriends for him. And uh, we're going we're gonna to slowly start to introduce him and see how it goes. And, you know, we, we said we've got to document this and share this story with the world. And it's, it's a rhino love story. There's, there's so many poaching stories out there. And there's so many horrible stories that people get so um, turned off to it. They don't want to see it. And then they don't learn about it. We want them to see the beautiful side of rhinos. So, so we're looking to, to create something quite beautiful with him. And, and then his progeny can go back into the national parks and start to repopulate. So he's, he's just our love. So I can't wait to see him. I, I love it. Yeah, we're we're looking for a love story here. Where there's so many negative stories, let's let's focus on the, on a love story and uh, yeah, and see when we have little moonus running around. On, on that as well, you know, what's what's fascinating about it is that, you know, what we saw with something like my octopus teacher, we saw the ability for 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 kindness and communication to transcend language, to transcend species, and that told the world that you could connect with the natural world at a time when we were so disconnected through COVID. So our opportunity to create the documentary with Munu is equally important because um, if, I, if I take my experiences in the African bush, you know, if, if you gave me a choice of walking around a corner and seeing a black rhino in front of me or seeing a, a lion, you know, I'm going to choose the lion every day because that's a manageable animal in the bush to some extent but a black rhino you know the running joke in africa is they wake up grumpy and by the time they go to bed they're completely pissed off you know they're just they're grumpy they're aggressive and monu has has he he understands the language of kindness here is this alpha bull where he was he wasn't in captivity when he went blind he was a wild rhino. He was the alpha in his area. He was 16, 17 years old when we found him. And his entire life had been this alpha male, dominant, almost aggressive, violent being that we would expect a, a successful black rhino to be. And yet now he understands kindness to the point that he will seek out Shannon's hand and when he realizes that his Shannon's hand is on his face, he puts his head on the fence and he goes to sleep. It's, there is a lesson in all of us in a sense of humanity that to be kind, we don't have to look the same. We don't have to understand each other. And you can find kindness and love when you just show up and be present and understand somebody else's experiences. And that's the, that's the, the opportunity in telling Munu's story is that we've we've all been rejected we've all been scared we've all been vulnerable and we've all been in a position when we don't know how to communicate that and now the way to save a species is by listening to that exact story from a blind rhino it's it's quite extraordinary and open invitation to you and any of your listeners as well as if you're in africa let us know and come and visit him absolutely i like how you're um you're looking at this not just as a black and white 
issue uh, and not just the sobering statistics, but this the uh, the affection, the uh, the morality, the, uh, the the subtle things that maybe get missed sometimes when we're talking about these issues that uh, that I think are really important. Um, the the work you're doing, I know you've you used to be more focused on the grant making, and now you have a very robust sort of programs that you're running as well. And I'd love to find out a little bit more about those programs. What do they look like? What um, what are they all about? Well, one of our programs that we just launched is called One Woman's Legacy. We looked around at people working in conservation in South Africa, for instance, and the women that are working in conservation are powerhouses, but there aren't a lot of them. And we started asking ourselves, why are there not that many women? And there's certainly not a lot of African women, local African women, but the ones that that are there are incredible and they bring something to it that the men just can't. They bring a compassion, they bring a love, and there's just, there's a different way of communicating and thinking. So we said, how can we help more women get into conservation, into all the conservation scientists, sciences? So it could be being a vet, it could be a ranger, uh, it could be a lawyer for, for conservation. There's just so many ways you can get into conservation. And so we started this scholarship fund and we we brought on a really amazing woman who's actually who actually became our first recipient of the scholarship fund. And now she's helping to run and shape the program because she's been through it and she knows the trials and tribulations of going out and getting a scholarship and where was she getting blocked and what are the issues and how can we create something different so that women aren't getting blocked? Um, Simple things like a lot of scholarship funds have an age limit. So we said, great, then there's no age limit because a lot of these women, they they might go to school later because they're having to raise their brothers and sisters and help at home. And there's all these reasons that they might not be ready to start that journey until they're a little bit older. So why should they be punished because they're older trying to get into conservation? So we looked at all of these things and said, we're going to help create a fund from beginning to end. So all they have to do is go get their degree in whatever they want to do. So we take care of everything from A to Z. We help them all along the way. We get them any mentors they need. And we really want to start populating conservation with, with more African women and that's just the start for us. Like, I really see this being a worldwide program because this model will work everywhere. So we start here. And as we grow, we're going to bring it to other countries. You know, as we get people that want to sponsor women in other countries, that gives us that opportunity to expand. So Excellent. I, my dream is one day One Woman's Legacy will be a very big standalone project that will be around long after I'm gone. Excellent, excellent. I love it. And even though you're not saying so by name, but yes, you have the conservation, but you're also having things that are focused on education, women's economic empowerment, gender. I mean, this is a quite a holistic approach, I think, and and even workforce issues, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think the gender inequalities that we observe in almost every sector around the world are exacerbated in, in Africa um, and in the developing world where I think there is perhaps a greater level of cultural stigma and a greater influence of geography and socioeconomics in altering those those constructs. And so what we wanted it to be was as much a mentorship as it was a scholarship. 
And the reason why that's so important is that you take someone like Merlin as, as an example. She's a first generation graduate and so many of her peers are going through school or have an opportunity now to, to go and get a high school diploma, to get into university, two things that their parents never did. So you've got an opportunity where you've got to realize that just access to academics isn't simply not enough. There is career mentorship, career management skills that need to go hand in hand with that to ensure that um, it, it works and that it's sustainable. And one of the reasons why we why we chose to focus our support on women, apart from the obvious and very well documented global need, is that you know, as, as a friend of ours jokes, you know, when you pay a when you pay a man, we you know, we go and put it in the bartender's hand. But when you pay women, they do crazy things like buy shoes and pay school fees, you know, and, and literally put the money back into their homes and back into their communities. So women have a greater economic impact than men do in terms of managing the result of a buoyant career. And we need to pay homage to that. Um, the other thing that I quite often say to people is that when we look to nature, we often talk about biomimicry, you know, the, the idea of looking at what we can learn from nature in a petri dish. But I'm also a big believer in macrobiomimicry. What can we learn from nature simply by observing it? And when we do that, the first thing that you see, which is an unavoidable truth, is that almost without ex exception, nature is run by matriarchal constructs. It's run by women, whether it is an elephant herd, hyenas, a pride of lions, they are developed, maintained, and structured by the females in that community. And humans are the only animals that have managed to screw that up and put guys that look like you and me, Alberta, into, into ridiculous positions of power. And we don't know how to distribute that power. We know how to just take more of it. And so by empowering women, we can fundamentally change the landscape of not just the African continent, but the economic opportunities that it represents for the entire world. And is that a grand statement? Yes, absolutely. But it's not untrue. And we have to commit ourselves to the potential of these young women, not to our abilities, but rather to their potential. And that's what we committed to do. Mm. And supporting women's economic empowerment also helps the next generation, right? Absolutely. Women's uh, degree of uh, educational attainment, her well-being, all of these things impact her child's uh, expected life outcomes. Yeah. So I love I love the strategic thinking and the passion you're bringing to all of this. Uh, now you have that, you have some resources, you have a big heart, you have clarity of thought as to where you're focusing your your attention. Now, one thing that many foundations and philanthropic initiatives don't have is the celebrity angle, the brand, as it were. You you guys are privileged, right? Because Shannon, you're a very recognized uh, actor. Uh, your voice, if you say something, and I speak from some experience because I work with uh, with Novak Djokovic and his foundation and Goldie Hawn's foundation. And, you know, when, when high-profile individuals say something, it's easier to garner headlines. It's easier to drive um, awareness, public discourse. So give us a little bit of insight into that. How have you been able to leverage that? What do those dynamics look like uh, for your foundation? It's hard to say sometimes, you know, like I've, I've had amazing opportunities to do things like, say, go on a live TV show where I'm able to slide in messages in there, whether they know I'm going to do it or not, you know, so it gives me those platforms that, that definitely help. And 
I mean, I guess part of why I got into this was to utilize that platform as best I could, because I do feel like anybody who has some sort of a public platform of any kind should be utilizing it to give back in some way. I think everybody out there, every actor, musician, public speaker should should have something that's their mission on the planet that they stand for outside of themselves. And that's how you can really make di- difference in this world and make a change. So we're we're always interrogating what is it that we can do to utilize that platform? How do we grow that platform simply for this? I mean, I feel like sometimes I I really go back and do TV and films so that we'll have this platform to to make change and to bring more people into this world because that's what I feel like I'm here for. So I feel very blessed that I was given the platform and I think that's that this is why I was given that platform. It was it was never because oh I was just meant to to do films my whole life, but I was meant to do this. So th- I had to do the first part to get to this and um I think we're very lucky in that sense. I I never I never wanted it to be named after me and eventually we're going to rebrand it to be something else, but we felt like, well, maybe, maybe that helps to utilize the platform right now for the time being, but eventually it'll change because it must outlive me and I want it to live on long after I'm here. Something to add to that as well, Berta, which um, Shannon is very, very modest, um, but one of the things that she, I think she underestimates and that I find incredibly attractive is, that, and yes, I'm speaking as a husband, but um, one, one of the things that really stood out for me with, with, with Shannon and her journey is that having a platform is one thing, but one of the greatest responsibilities within having that platform is to inform the platform, is to inform yourself. And when Shannon and I met, what she had chosen to do was that she had uh, raised some funds and had traveled basically on her own dime for several months, moving from Kenya to Malawi to Zimbabwe to South Africa and spending months on the road learning. She came out here to talk to people, to interview people and to learn about the crisis, not arriving here saying, I've got the solution and I'll talk about it and it'll all be okay. She came here to represent the truth, to learn what that truth is, and to use it in a way to empower people like her around the world who have platforms and can do something with them. And I think that that is just extraordinary because what it's done is that Shannon's been accepted as a conservationist and not just as someone with a platform. And uh, I mean, we've got, I've got videos of her taking some very weird fecal samples from a sedated rhino and getting her hands dirty and taking blood samples and relocating elephant and doing the most extraordinary work with mud on her boots and scars on her hands. And she's shown up. And I think that that's the greatest opportunity for people with a platform is not just to say that the platform's valuable, but when you inform that platform by getting your hands dirty, you can fundamentally change the course of a, a species or of a situation. And strategically that's i think such an incredible opportunity uh, as evidenced with with shannon's journey let, let me ask you a question that might seem counterintuitive but are there drawbacks to being high profile are there drawbacks to having a celebrity name or a face that people recognize 
I think Simon may have different answers than me to this. I can see him laughing. Um, I mean, for me, it's the fact that people, sometimes some people will say, well, why don't you fund it? They, they just assume you have your own, you know, millions and millions of dollars to do the whole thing. And why are you asking other people to get involved and help? Um, I I'll get criticized for for doing, doing this work and running a foundation and say, well, you're just putting money in your own pocket where the truth is I've never paid myself a dime for this. I've never taken a salary for this, but um, yeah. So there's always going to be critics. Um, there'll always be that, but I think the good outweighs the bad for sure. Simon, what are you thinking? Cause I think you're thinking something else. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking something else. I, I, Shannon is an incredibly gifted legal and investigative mind, and we do a fair amount of work in the intelligence space. And I think you know, we, we've often explored going, well, let's go undercover for documentary filmmaking, or let's go undercover from an investigative perspective. And we've got all of our partners here, guys that have been in intelligence agencies around the world. And they kind of look at Shannon and go, um, <laughs> I, I don't, you undercover. I'm not really sure how <laughs> this is going to work out. So I, I, and I tried to train <laughs> for it once. I did try to train and harden myself up, and I was like, <laughs> "No, I can utilize this as, and and become very public in a different way." Or uh, there's a way because I I love that kind of stuff. I love the intelligence world. And I still think there's a way. I do. I just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> you um. You, you you are doing some work on the intelligence side, or possibly that's on the horizon, right? We have a law and legislation arm. Um, we definitely go to Washington, D.C. quite often, and we talk with senators and congressmen and women. Uh, we talk about the different acts that and bills that could be going through, like the Big Cat Public Safety Act. We've been very vocal on trying to push that through and not just representing ourselves, but representing an industry of information. So we will go to partners here, other organizations and say, we are going to DC to talk on this bill. Would you like to share your data? What data can you give us? And let us represent a whole bunch of organizations when we're there and leave them with information from this side of the world, because quite often, they're affecting people and animals on the ground here because that's where these big cats originally came from. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And there, there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening in the U.S. where the implications are actually happening here, but they don't realize what is happening on this side of the world. So we want to bring that information to them, and that's where I think my my notoriety and platform can help me. It can help get us in the door so we can share this at times. That's what I'm hoping that to, to utilize that to, to make a difference, to make that kind of change. Is it difficult gathering all the, uh, the information from the key stakeholders in your neck of the woods in Africa uh, and then being able to collate all of this, go to D.C.? engage with policymakers, ideally at the time when they are themselves possibly at the point of voting on some legislation. Right. Is that whole process uh, straightforward or is there a lot of little blind spots here and there that you need to be mindful of? I think it's, uh, I think it's what strategy you choose to employ. You know, the, the typical expectation of celebrity 
is arrive on the steps of the Capitol, get the media around, beat a drum, get arrested on live TV, and <laughs> that, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm being overtly cynical to make the point, of course, but um, what we've found is to take a far more collaborative advisory capacity, and to do that requires a huge amount of research and consideration. So we learned very early on that when you go to DC, it's not about what do you want to say, it's about what needs to be heard. And quite often they're two different things. So what we did was that we looked at voting patterns, historical voting patterns of various legislators in the House and in, in the Senate, and then started to look at who backed who, who co-sponsored certain bills, and what were the promises made in their electoral ballot to get them into office. And then we started to prioritize research and information that would talk to their need in their legislative promises and how that would influence them. And, and as a working example, um, we spent several months working on the RAW Act, which basically unlocked uh, funds for whistleblowers and resources around the world in the protection of um, animal welfare issues. And basically, if you could associate the US through identifying a US national as part of the trade, or whether it was done in dollar, or it was transited through the states, any way of implicating the US, you would unlock whistleblower funds, resources, legal advice, etc. And anything to do with wildlife, um, it gets shut down by a certain sector, they just won't hear you. And what we were able to do was work was walk into certain offices and corridors and say, you know, if we can contextualize, the, contextualize these issues, then would we have a better discussion? And what we were able to do was to say, if, if you've had a son or a daughter or a spouse or a friend or a relative that has served in the military and heaven forbid been wounded or killed in the war on terror, then if I could reasonably show you that there is a good chance that the bullet that killed them was funded by the illegal wildlife trade. Could we have a discussion about national security? Could we have a discussion about the protection of armed forces and deployed soldiers and men and women around the world? And suddenly that opened up a different corridor. They were like, hold on a second, what do you mean? And you're going, well, the interconnectedness of the illegal wildlife trade and how that talks into acts of terror and how that talks into other illegal trades and syndicate trades, says that this is a greater issue than just protecting animals. So if I showed up and just showed another photograph and Shannon was crying on the steps of the Capitol and saying, we don't want to see another rhino with its face butchered off. Yes, that's true. We don't want to see it. We presented with that every day. It's, it's traumatizing. But what needs to be heard is why should America engage? Why should the European Union engage? Why should uh, the UN General Assembly engage in these issues? Because they interlinked with so many other societal ills that when we treat it as a point of information and, and intelligence gathering, and we can use it as a point of, of convergence intelligence, we can impact so many more issues than just, please help me stop rhinos being hurt every day. Um, and that kind of strategic approach has worked very well for us. Hmm. There are so many interesting facets to the work you're doing, uh, both thematically, operationally. I wish we had more time because this is one of <laughs> we're going to have to have you back. Yes, um, we would love that. Thank you. How can somebody find out more about your work? What's your website address? ShannonElizabeth.org is our website. 
Um, info at shannonelizabeth.org. We've kept it very simple, easy to contact us. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, we we welcome people to get in touch. We we want people to to see what's going on, to partner with us, to get involved, and we're really big on helping to facilitate someone's legacy. So when somebody wants to get involved in this and they want to leave a legacy on this planet. We can help facilitate that. We're on the ground doing the work. They don't have to be here to do it, but they can definitely be a part of it or they could be here if they want to. But it gives people an opportunity to, to get involved without actually having to move here and do it physically. So that's a big thing for us. And you're registered both as a, uh, you're registered in the US as a 501c3, if I'm not yes. mistaken, and also yep. registered in South Africa as a nonprofit. Yeah, the same type. It's a PBO. So we're able to give the same tax certificates here as well. Now, I always like to ask my guests for a key takeaway before we wrap things up. That one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show. Uh, Simon, what would be yours? Um, never underestimate the power of social alchemy when passion and purpose collide. We can change the world if you're passionate about something. And everybody is an influencer. Everybody has the ability to change the way someone, even if it's one person, sees the world and sees the protection of our planet. And take that as an opportunity, not as just a duty. And run with it. Everybody can affect the world positively and do it. Please. I love it. I love it. And Shannon? You know, people used to say to me, why do you... Why do you do things to help animals when there's so many people in the world that need help? And um, I tell them now, now that I've gotten into conservation, I say, you know, saving animals is saving people. It's all interconnected. It's all the same thing. We're doing the same work. And it, it's not one or the other. We're, we're all on this planet together. We're all interconnected. And we're, we're working at it from all angles. So... Now, now you can do both at the same time. Guys, I absolutely love it. Shannon, Simon, thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Shannon Elizabeth and Simon Borchard. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. As always, thanks so much for downloading this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed producing it for you and thoroughly enjoy producing these weekly podcast interviews and case studies that hopefully inform you, enthuse you, and entice you to take positive action to drive forward the global sustainability agenda. Thanks as ever, and I'll catch you next week.